Well, here we are back once again, another Friday and another piece of North Melbourne royalty. The last two weeks, well, so <laughs> the last two weeks we've had started with Jason McCartney, then had uh, the shin baron of the century himself, Glenn Archer. The next man, well, he won three best and fairest at two clubs. He won two at the mighty Kangaroos when Wayne Carey was up and about. So. Swatter would actually lay claim to being the best player in the competition in 1994-95. He's a premiership player, played 282 games. In my mind, and he knows this, I've been pushing hard. He should be in the AFL Hall of Fame, if that's not a Hall of Fame resume. Welcome, Wayne Swast. Uh, thank you very much, Corey. Very kind of you, and I absolutely agree. I should be in there. It's a travesty <laughs> that I'm not, and uh, you need to keep lobbying until I get in there. I do. You know I keep pushing pretty hard. I, I just think the record speaks for itself. I think, uh, yeah, with what you've achieved in the game and then if they weigh in the post-career stuff as, as well, that what you've done, I think you, you should be a walk-up start, but apparently not. So <laughs> It's a very subjective thing, mate. Very kind of you, though. It's good to chat. It's very good to chat. We don't talk enough. Very good to chat, my friend. Now, how have, uh, I, I suppose, with the pandemic, uh, that's going on at the moment. How has that taken up your time with what you're doing nowadays? Um, oh, it's like a lot of people, Corey. It's impacted our business. We've um, had to make some changes, but even before even before COVID nineteen disrupted everybody's life, um, I've always believed in the importance and value of of preventative, um, preventatively investing into people's mental health and emotional well being. Yeah. Um, and this is something that I've been, <clears throat> you know, committed to for a long time, 15 years now. But I think what it's done, it's, it's reinforced in my own mind uh, how important everybody's mental health and emotional well-being is. Um, and, and unfortunately, because of the current situation, it's increased the stress, it's increasing the anxiety, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of uncertainty for a lot of people. And it probably highlights the importance of, trying to educate the broader Australian community and individually, um, getting pe helping people understand that we shouldn't wait until we're sick, we shouldn't wait until we're incredibly stressed, or we shouldn't wait until we think we might have a mental health condition before we start to invest into preventatively and proactively manage our well managing our well-being. So um, if, if anything, it's reinforced my absolute belief that this is really important work that we do. We just need to make sure that as a business we get through this, because once we get through it, um, you know, the requirement of, of the work that we do, but also the work that other uh, really important mental health organisations are doing will be um, more important because so many people are being impacted by what we're having to come to terms with. Yeah. Well, look, I was, I was actually going to ask this question later, but seeing as we're on it now, is it, is it pretty frustrating for you that uh, I know what we're doing with the pandemic and you see the reaction to that in order to save lives. Is it very frustrating from your end when you see the reaction to something like that, which we know the ramifications of the pandemic and unfortunately we've had lives lost, but I, I, I sit back knowing the job and the message of what you're trying to achieve and how many Australians each day, unfortunately, do take their lives. So if you then added that up in the last little period, does it frustrate the hell out of you that, we don't have the same reaction to what you do? That's a really interesting question that you ask, uh, Corey, because that's something that I think about a lot every day, it's something yeah. that I've thought about a lot 
for many years. And, and you know, COVID-19 has infected a lot of people. Um, and tragically, we've lost uh, about 63 or 65 people as a result of this. Now, every one of those people is a family member and there's a story to that. So I, 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 it's important that people don't interpret this the wrong way, but that's 63 or 65 lost, lives lost. And that's tragic and devastating for the families and the friends and the communities that have to come to terms with the, the loss of a loved one. And I absolutely understand that and I absolutely support that. <clears throat> but one of, one of the things that does frustrate me is that as, as a country individually and as an entire population, we have completely shut things down almost overnight and instantaneously to protect lives. And I understand the thinking, the rationale behind that. And we're all, we all have a responsibility in that. But to give this some perspective, um, we've, we've lost 60-odd lives. Every day in Australia before COVID-19, on average, we lose eight people a day to suicide. So that's 56 lives lost every week on average, 52 weeks a year. We've had three consecutive years in Australia, 16, 17, 18, where we've lost more than 3,000 people to suicide every year in Australia. We're at an all-time high with the number of people that have tragically taken their lives. And then to give it some more perspective, on average, we have 65,500 people who are attempting to end their lives every year in Australia. We've never had a response or a reaction from our governments on both sides, our businesses and our communities and individually, we've never had a, a reaction or a response to protect and preserve the lives lost because of mental health conditions. And my great fear is, and I hope I'm horribly wrong with this, Corey, but my great fear is because the, of the exponential uh, explosion in stress and anxiety and uncertainty and loss of job and loss of income, that we run the real risk of having more people or, or losing more people as a result of mental health conditions and not feeling like they can find a way through that. So um, yes, it does answer the question is the short answer. Do I think that things will change? I'm not sure. I wish, I, I wish and I hope that things do change, but if this is what we're capable of because of a contagious virus, Mm. And why aren't we capable of responding in the same way to protect and preserve lives of people who are living with mental health conditions? I don't get it. Yeah, look, I, I only because I know, I think, yeah, you may have uh, said that statistic before that, yeah, before this, it was eight lives. So it's not, it's not inconceivable that in the last, what are we, four or five weeks, I, I'd, I'd hasten, yeah. it, it makes your skin crawl, that number. Yeah, it, it, eight, eight on average uh, is something that I'm not, and, and we as an organisation aren't comfortable with, but I think we can safely assume that that number is only going to go up. Um, and if you look at the reports in the newspaper over the course of the last 48 hours, there's been an exponential growth in the number of people who are reaching out to mental health organisations and service providers because of the increased stress and uncertainty that they're dealing with. So for every person that's reaching out, what about all of those other people that don't feel like they, they can reach out? It's, it's, it's a scary situation. But again, um, if, if, if we focus on that, um, it can be completely overwhelming. So our focus 
is to ensure that Pakarup gets through this current challenge economically so that we're in a position that once we do get through this, um, we can then boot everything back up and we can start to really work in that preventative space. Yeah, 100%, which is where we want to be. Look, I'll come back to uh, the pucker up at the end because it's obviously something I really want to cover off. But explain, look, all, all the footy fans out there, how did Wayne Swass, now this is going to seem like an eternity ago because when you see Wayne with his hair nowadays, he... Uh, he I don't have much. He hasn't got a lot left. But when, he, when he did come to North Melbourne, he had a big long dirty mullet and yeah. came in from Warnable. but how did all that journey evolve where you came down from Warnable and all of a sudden you get the shock of your life you're dealing with someone else who uh had a fair mop of hair and that's Dennis Pagan yeah so I'm going to try and condense all this down pretty quickly but born in New Zealand father's Maori mum's Australian lived there for th- uh, my first three years uh, mum and dad decided to move to Australia so I moved to a little place on the outskirts of Warnable called Dennington um, and uh, went to school, did all of those type of things, and at the age of 10, was um, I would follow my dad everywhere, and one of those places I would go would be to cricket training, and uh, on the last cricket training session, which was a Thursday night, it was the final game of the cricket season, which then led into winter, and when dad and his teammates all went inside the, uh, the club rooms, um, I stayed out, and I was mucking around, and I just remember this group of men coming out from another set of change rooms in weird-looking shorts, sort of really old Hessian jumpers, and they started kicking this weird-looking ball around. And I was, I was just mesmerised by what these guys were doing, and that was the introduction to, to the game of VFL back then. Um, spent the next uh, five years playing local country footy. And at the age of 17, uh, sorry, 16, uh, three of my teammates had been invited to train and play for Fitzroy. Uh, this, I, I was zoned, Warnable was zoned to Fitzroy, so this is pre-draft. Um, and for some strange reason, Corey, uh, I was not invited nor was I to train or play. So I started to make inquiries into joining the Army. And I remember being picked up by my mum one day in year 10 and I hopped in the car and I said, right, I'm ready to go to the Army. They play footy against the Air Force, the Navy and the Army. I'll get my footy fixed there and I'll just go and join the, the Army. And she said, which I found really strange at the time, she said, why don't you give it four more weeks? See what happens. What I didn't realise was Ron Joseph and, and Greg Miller, CEO and the footy director of recruiting, had been coming down secretly and watching me play. I was playing senior footy at the age of 15, 16. And... Um, They'd been visiting my mum and dad while I was at school during the course of that four-week period. And uh, then eventually, um, a few weeks later, much to my surprise, those two men knocked on my door at home. And that led me to agreeing to come to North. But in 1996 was my first year at North. But I had to stand out of footy for nine months because I was still zoned to Fitzroy. And I can still recall a three-hour conversation when I lived with the captain of North at that stage, Wayne Schimmelbush. I was sitting in his lounge room with Shimmer on the same couch. And David Parkin, who was the coach of Fitzroy, sat on the other couch pleading to me why he wanted me to come to Fitzroy. It was a great conversation, but at the end of the three hours, I said no. And I decided to stay with North and set out a footy for nine months and then eventually got cleared. And uh, I know, uh, did you play in those under-19 grand finals that, was it 86 or 87 where you had the really good punch-ups with Richmond? Yeah, that was 1986. It was a big stink. That was just tradition. Uh, I don't know why I couldn't fight. Was that um, a de- 
Was that driven by Pago and Slav no. Jordan? Or no, not it, at all. It was just the no. players had it was a real... Just the players and that was football back in those eras. I mean, if, if, if you go back to 84, 85, you think about the, 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 the brawls that Essendon and Hawthorne had in the seniors. So, um, 86, we lost to Richmond. We were clearly the better team um, through the course of the year, but they... <clears throat> sorry, we lost to Collingwood in, uh, yeah. in 86. Um, and we defeated Richmond in 1987. But um, that, was, that was the way that football was played. It was an aggressive game of football and there was, was not uncommon for there to be all-in brawls. Um, I, I wouldn't advocate that now, but that's just the way that footy was played back then. Do you think, in some regards, like, because I, I also know how hard a tag, at, like once we you know, I mean, got through and I was actually playing with you in the seniors and there was those periods where you were copying a hard tag. Do you reckon that early uh, up, upbringing of playing in the under-19s, of basically standing up for yourself? Because everyone out there, by the way, as good as Wayne Carey can fight, I'm telling you, <laughs> this bloke would be the welterweight that would be next in line. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't pick a fight with Duck. He's too big and too strong. Um, the, 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 the history behind me getting involved in boxing, which I absolutely loved, was uh, in an under-19 game, for, for a year and a half, there was a guy by the name of Keith Royston who used to, um, who used to play for the Bulldogs. Yeah. And I was a very lightly built, fast, skinny, but frightened uh, midfielder. <laughs> um, and Keith Royston used to terrorise me. And I mean, absolutely terrorise me. Every time I played the Bulldogs, I never got a kick. And then anyway, one day we were playing at Arden Street, back in the old days where you would play at Arden Street. And uh, there was an all-in brawl. And uh, it was on the fence in front of the old Arden Street grandstand. And God bless Mickey Martin's mum. She was sitting on the boundary line and the, the fight was literally on the fence. And um, Keithy Royson was just giving me an awful hiding. And next minute you could just hear Mick's mum yell out, don't hit my players. And next minute she's got her handbag, leaned over the bloody fence and whacked Keithy Royston on the head. Anyway, the fight stopped. And after that, Dennis came up to me um, after the game and said, listen, this is going to happen to you a lot and, and you're either going to have to find a way to deal with this or you need to start to learn how to look after yourself. Otherwise, players are going to try and intimidate you all the time. So from that, I um, was introduced to Paul Ferrari, a boxing coach, um, and spent half a season doing boxing with, with, uh, with Paul. Um, and that was probably the introduction. I'm not a fighter, Corey. Buddy. I like the sport, but that's not really who I am. But because of that, Dennis gave me a bit of confidence and um, that was probably one of the ways that I could learn with dealing with tags. But if I look back on my career, and I know you didn't ask this question, when I was at North, I never cut with taggers, never. I hated them. I was very short-tempered. And taggers knew that if they could engage me verbally, then I would lose concentration on what I had to do. Mm. It wasn't until I went to Sydney, and the club doesn't know this, but I did three and a half years of boxing training um, uh, three times a week for three and a half years. And I was able to cope with taggers then because I've, n I, I was, I was no I've never been fitter in my entire life. And I just knew because of the boxing training that at some point I would be able to physically and mentally break my opponents because of my conditioning. And if I look back on my career, it's probably one of the great regrets is that I was too hot-tempered and short-tempered um, and I didn't deal with those taggers in a more appropriate way. I, was, I, just, I wanted to kill them. Did you go on the, it was before my time, but I did hear a lot of stories about it. Did you go on the camp where 
you basically played boxing basketball. You played. Yeah, that was that was that was horrible. Basically played for those out there. They basically played a game of basketball. Just have a vision of this. They played a game of basketball <laughs> with a boxing glove on. Yeah, one boxing glove on. You had to hold the other hand without a boxing glove behind you. Um, if you didn't have the ball, and you're allowed to punch people on the other team anywhere you wanted, except the head. And when you had blokes like Carey, Longmire, Archer, Stevens, Rock, Swass, fiery individuals, it's fair to say, Corey... would not have cut any time Horse got hit, that uh, lip would uh, come out and uh, he would just... it It was a game that we didn't play ever again and for good reason. No, it wasn't good. We did some stupid things back then. Now, um, I didn't have this in my questioning, but you've actually reminded me of something that you had a very upfront, uh, close view. Do you remember when we went to Puckapunyal? Oh, yeah. And there was a one C McKernan that was in the, in the tent all night and he, he didn't sleep, but you were in the same tent as me and you tried to explain to the shimmer to say, listen, this bloke is not very well. <laughs> no, who was it? I don't remember. Oh, yeah. I went from 97 kilos to 87, 86 kilos in the space of four days. That was Did me. you really? Yeah. That, that, was, that was a really hot trip. <laughs> that was a really hot, painful trip. The PT instructors were assholes because all they wanted to do was break us. But you know my, my lasting memory of that, do you remember the way that they would wake us up every morning? Yeah. With machine guns? Well, that I didn't is- need to because that first night I didn't sleep, so I already heard them setting up. So it was one thing I can actually laugh nah. about when you've been to the toilet 17 times in one night yeah, that yeah. I could hear them setting up. So I actually nah, that, enjoyed it. That, that, that was that, my one bit of enjoyment that night. No, nah, that, was, that, was, uh, that was a tough trip. But the, the, see, these are the things that we went to Bacchus Marsh to do that infamous, infamous training camp. We went to Puckapunya. We would go down to Cer- Cerberus. We would go all over the place to those training camps. And I know that the game has changed dramatically and, and, and a lot of it is for good reason. But if I look back when we played, um, you know, a, a lot of us, maybe for you younger guys, it might have been different, but I had a full-time job. I worked with Kerry Good and his, his packaging company at that time. Um, and we had a full-time job and we were, we were sort of moving towards semi-professional um, football players. But it's those trips that are probably my favourite memories because... You know, we, we get to spend time with, you know, everybody. We, and we were such a close group. Now, I said this earlier this week on an Adelaide radio station that one of the, probably what made the place so good, Corey, I don't know about your thoughts, but, but was the relationships that we had amongst our teammates. Like, when I say this, we genuinely loved each other. And we would do anything on a football field to look after each other and protect one another. But it was not uncommon for 40 North players, from the young kids to the oldest players, to be at someone's house having a barbecue or out having a good time. And that's and, and, and also those relationships we had with staff, like the, the uniqueness of the relationships that we had with our trainers and our support staff and our fans was, was what I think made the, the football club such a great place to be around. I think... That's what makes North Melbourne in general. And, it, and it's great to see, I think the club have started to tap back into that again with Reece Shaw and Ben Amalfio and having yeah. Brady Rawlings back there. And you're just hearing and, and talking to a lot of people down there that 
that's what that's what makes the the North Melbourne Footy Club. I know each club's got its own DNA, um, but yeah, when you think about North Melbourne and and they're my sentiments is exactly. You know, I mean, when it comes to yeah, it was us as players, but then you also had Harry Unlick and Gordo yeah. and Rog and yeah. the trainers and I mean Judy and all these things. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was um, yeah. was it you or Dean Laidley that hit Jude in the head with the with the with the ball in the rooms? No, nah, that, that, that wasn't me, and I'd be too scared to do it because Judy Francis was one of the fieriest women that I've ever met. Jeannie McAllister was her partner in crime. But, she had her know, favourites, though. Pardon? She definitely had her favourites. Yeah, she did. She did. But, but like, Judy Francis, Jeannie McAllister, Ronnie McIntosh, Skull, mm. Orb Devlin, Billy Shute, um, uh, all of you know, Steve Riga was our was our money man. Like to go and get young, get your monthly check from Steve Riga was like you were walking into his personal vault and taking his own cash out of it. But here's the funny thing: I haven't seen Steve Riga for probably 25 years. And late last year, I was down at Phillip Island delivering a wellbeing presentation, and lo and behold, who's in the audience? Steve Riga. And 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 the beautiful thing about that time is we may not see each other often, but one of the great things about when we get together, and I say we as in former players but also staff, nothing's changed. Distance might be further apart, but when we're together, that bond comes back and you feel that bond very quickly. And and they're the people for me um, that made the experience as a player even more enjoyable and satisfying. It's actually pretty funny you bring up the Steve Riga story because I was talking to Wayne Carey about that. Now, he had a vastly different way that the, the way that he would go about it. Like you or I would go in there terrified about... Steve would drop the money off to Duck's house. No, no, what he'd do, he'd walk in there and if, if Steve said it was a bit tight, all so he'd go walk down that hallway, he'd go right to Steve <laughs> yeah. Riga's office. If he said no, yeah. he'd turn around. <laughs> go to Greg Miller's? Go to Greg Miller's and go, Greg, <laughs> I want my money. Go and see him, will you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's only one bloke that could get away with that. We all would go to Steve's office and there'd be a no, so we'd just go back out there and go, shit, when are we going to get our cash? What did, what did Rocky call Wayne Carey? He called him um, He called him Steven Seagal. And Steven Seagal had a movie that was out during the 90s. It was called Above the Law. Yeah, he was a law unto himself, Doug. Yeah. Yeah. Now, just on that, we, we touched on it before, 1994, 1995, when... Uh, the aforementioned Wayne Carey was really getting up and about. Yeah. How satisfying is it with the looking back at it now that you won back-to-back best and fairest at a time when Wayne was becoming Wayne? Um, I, I, I must admit, Corey, I, I never really... I, you know when you're playing, you don't really have time to sit and think. You're just playing, mm. you, you know, you're trying to perform, you, you know, you want to be part of a successful club and, and team and... Um, you know, I never, I never, I never spent much time thinking about it. I'm incredibly grateful for it. Um, it's probably only in retirement that you sort of sit back and, and you have an opportunity where you, you start to reflect about the significance of some of the things that you're able to achieve. And I look, you know, I was lucky enough and fortunate enough to have uh, a couple of good years back to back. I probably think the thing that is most humbling about it is. Um, the man that I regard as the greatest player to have ever played our game and I've played with and against him, for him on more than one occasion to say with me in, in the same radio box as him that 
I'm the greatest player that he's ever played with at North. You know, the best and fairest mean a lot, but to have that mm. comment shared from someone who I regard as the greatest, it's humbling. Um, and it's something that I'm incredibly proud of. Well, I think back to the one game that really sticks in my mind that you're absolutely, and I'd be interested to see your thoughts, what would be your best game. But I, I know the one that sticks in my mind is when we played at Optus Over, we actually played the West Coast Eagles in pretty much, I think there were conditions that suited us to tell you the truth. But I reckon, and it was also the day, I think that particular day you took a huge hang, but would, would that be, if that's not your best game, what, what would be one of the best games during that period that you'd say, yeah, that, I'd rate that as my best game I'd ever played? Yeah, it was a good day, that one. We won 35 touches, two goals and a high mark, so a solid game. Um, I think I got two brown low boats that day. Only two? Really Who got the goal, three? A really good goal on the boundary line too. Um, no, um, I mean, that was a good game. But there's, there's, there was a game, um, and I know this is about North, but there was a game that I played in my second year with the Sydney Swans uh, against West Coast again. Uh, Sydney hadn't beaten West Coast for about seven years. Um, Plugger was playing um, and it was at the Wacker. And for some reason, I just loved playing footy at the Wacker. It was a fast deck, uh, lots of space. And um, we managed to win. Plugger kicked seven. Uh, I got mid-30s again and kicked five goals. And if I, if, I had to, if I had to sit back and say which was the best game that I ever think that I played, it would, it would have to be that one against West Coast for the Sydney Swans. Um, you know, I, I, I think, Corey, I, 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 I played some good footy at North, but I was inconsistent. And there's a couple of reasons why I think I was in. I, I, I believe I played a, a more higher consistent level of football at the Sydney Swans. Yeah. reason why I was inconsistent at North was because I was too hot-tempered and I didn't know how to deal with taggers. And these are, these are back in the days where you had a legitimate tagger. So bad was I dealing with taggers. I don't know if you remember this, but Dennis Pagan thought it would be a smart idea to ask his son to tag me on a Tuesday night during a training session. Yeah, I remember now, that. I ran out of the race to get onto the training uh, ground at Arden Street. And as soon as I stepped foot on the ground, Ryan Pagan's barreled me and sat me on the bump. And I jumped up and I'm about to blow me gas. I said, what the bloody hell are you doing? He goes, mate, don't blame me. My old man said i got to tag you. So I just didn't know how to tag, cope with taggers. And I think that that probably had an impact on my ability to be a mature AFL footballer while I was at North, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and look, obviously, uh, not obviously, but I, I mean, I've heard the story since that during that time um, was when you first had the signs of, um, of mental health. How massive was it to have someone like Harry Unlick, that Harry, for the people that don't know, is already, already a great doctor in terms of um, if you're going to put, and I even said this during the week, for me to actually play in the 96 grand finals, as much as I said, well, Harry, I'm going to play. But Harry was brilliant at massaging you through games and things like that from a, from a medical point of view, but he's also a fantastic guy. But especially in those years, how hard um, was it to actually go through that and, yeah, but also on the flip side, to have someone like Harry Unlick, though. Well, Harry's been my doctor for 35 years and continues to take great care of, of, of my health, both physically and emotionally. And 
Um, you know, I'm, I mean, I will be forever indebted to him. Uh, the um, from I was diagnosed on the 9th of August, 1993. For those people who don't know, Corey, with with depression. Yep. And from that day, um, from the 9th of August, 1993, until I left the Kangaroos at the end of the 1997 season, there was not a single training session or a single game at any venue, including the MCG, where the same thing happened. And, and no one apart from Harry knew this. Um, and even my closest mates at, at, during that time at North, Anthony Rock and Ian Fairley, I mean, we were incredibly tight, us three, but mm. neither of those two knew. But every training session and every game I played, I'd do the same thing. I'd always get to the to, to training or the, wherever we were playing as late as I could, much to the frustration of Dennis, but that was deliberate. And the reason why I would do that is because the fear of me getting upset and losing control of my emotions and crying, which is something I did a lot of during that time, in front of you guys was paralysing. I, I, I didn't want to lose respect. I was vice-captain. I didn't want to be judged differently or seen as weak. So I would get to training or, foot, or the ground as late as I could and I'd, I'd walk in, I'd do everything I could to not engage in conversations with, with teammates or staff, put my bag at my locker and I'd walk to where Harry's office was. I'd check to see no one else was in there and if there was no one else in there, I'd walk in, I'd close the door and I'd lock it and I'd burst out crying. And I did that for, shit, what did I do that? I did that for four and a half years, um, every time every time because I was really struggling. I didn't want to deal with it. I didn't know how to deal with it. And the, the interesting thing is I never missed the training session and I never missed a game of footy because of my mental health conditions. And the reason I was able to do that was because I had a wonderful human being in that room every time who allowed me to be vulnerable and emotional. And I can remember vividly Corey saying to him, begging sometimes, mate, just let me go. I can't, do, I can't deal with this. I don't want to deal with it. Just let me go. And he just had this beautiful, caring nature about him that he would keep mm. engaged. And he said something the day after the training session after I was diagnosed that I'll, I'll never forget. And we, we, we went out. Um, when he diagnosed me, I said to him, mate, give me six months. I'll go away, I'll deal with this, and I'll come back. What I was really saying, with the benefit of hindsight and reflecting on it, I didn't want to deal with it and I was ready to walk away from the game. And he goes, no, we're going to get through this together. So. Um, the following training session, it's at Arden Street. I go into his office, I'm born, can't train, don't want to train, nah, we'll do this together. We go out. And you know where Dennis used to make us start warming up with the end-to-end sort of lame work drills? We were doing yeah. that. And I could just feel myself starting to get really emotional and I'm starting to get scared and panic and go, you know, I almost swear that I can't cry. And I looked to see where Harry was because I wanted to get his attention. And guess who Harry's standing right next to? There you go. Yeah. And I'm going, how the hell am I going to get his attention? I can't let Pogo see this. Anyway, I managed to get his attention. He came over and we went over to the, the fence away from everybody and I got really upset. I said, mate, I, I just can't do this. I, I don't have the strength to be able to do this. And I'll never forget this. He calmly looked at me and he goes, do you trust me? And I, I, said, I said to him, I said, of course I trust, I trust, trust you with everything. And he said, then trust me that I know what I'm doing with your mental health right now. And, 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 for four and a half years, I did not care what happened to me. I, I, I didn't care, Corey. I didn't care whether I lived or died. And that's not to overplay it because I'd lost hope. But the thing that I kept caring about was he cared about me enough. So what I did was I kept reminding myself, well, if I don't care about myself, I care about not letting him down. 
And that was the thing that I held on to through a really difficult period of my life. And, you know, it's in part why I'm so blessed and grateful that I've had a man in my life who's not my dad, but I treat him like my dad. I tell him I love him all the time. Um, I tell him how much I appreciate him. I send him messages. He's a little uncomfortable with it, but that man gave me what I needed during a really difficult time and I was able to get through it and I'm better for it because of what he gave me. And have you had conversations, because especially for being at North Melbourne during that time, we all know what a environment it was about, you know, I mean, all of us about, you know, I mean, not showing people that were injured and yeah. all these sorts of things. But have you since had a conversation with Dennis about, okay, him did because he would have been uh, he would have been none the wiser about all this was going on behind the scenes. Yeah, I, I've never sat down and had a really open discussion with him. Yeah, something that I've thought about, and, and to be honest, it's probably something that I should have done. Dennis didn't know, um, and and in part that was my doing because I made it abundantly clear to, to Harry regularly. Under no circumstances do you tell him what I'm dealing with. Um, and, and Harry, to his credit, never went into any detail except to say, we're working through some challenges and I've got it. And the reason, the reason why I, I didn't want anyone to know, but Dennis especially, was I was vice captain. I didn't want to lose that. I was proud of the fact that I was a deputy to Duck and I was a leader of the football club during that stage. But I believe that if anyone knew what I was living with, I'd lose that. I'd lose my career, I'd lose the relationships, with, which for me were the most important things that I valued, were the friendships that I had. And I was convinced that if anybody knew that, I'd lose those things and I wasn't prepared to lose it. And the sad, the sad thing about those decisions, Corey, which drives me to challenge people not to make the same decisions is this. There was never, there was never one stage during my 14 and a half year career where I ever compromised my physical health. But for six years of my life, I compromised my mental health because of fear. I sacrificed my well-being and mental health to protect relationships, to protect my career, to protect my position and my respect. What I've learned is that I paid a really, really big price for that. And if I had my time again and I was 23 and I'd just been diagnosed and, and we were teammates and Dennis was the coach, I would walk into that footy club and I would I would sit down with everybody and I'd be completely honest about what I was dealing with. Yeah. It's amazing uh, what you... Can you shut the door? Just got a little visitor. Um, right, they're kids. We're working from home. You've got you, you to be flexible, brother. Exactly right. Um, it's amazing when you talk about the power of a conversation and I, I must... Yeah, when, when you even put it like that, you have, uh, maybe having that conversation with Dennis, I, I can only put it, even me reading words of what Dennis had said about me the other day. Now, maybe you talk about having the stupid conversation in your head, maybe for so long that me thinking, oh, well, Dennis doesn't rate me and, you know I mean, these sorts of things and being a, like a hard taskmaster when it came to me. But yeah. then for me to read the other day, I, I never wanted to, I mean, I never wanted, want to win the Norm Smith medal or anything like that. But when I read him say about me the other day that, hey, like if it was up to me, Corey would have won, should have won the Norm Smith. Yeah. I, I was sitting on the couch and, and I had a lump in my throat. I'm like going, you know what? It was like, not a burden, but it was like in a way where you went, holy crap, he actually 
he actually thinks that of me, you know what I mean? So I can sort of, I can only not even imagine like for you that's been through what you've been through that, yeah, like to have that conversation even with someone like Dennis, yeah, would be um, well worth it, I think. <laughs> yeah, what's, what's interesting is um, I don't think, I, 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 I mean, Dennis's mentality and his philosophies were constantly keeping us on edge. Yeah, he he was so tough, so hard, so unrelenting, and I think I think look, I feel like I'm speaking on his behalf, and I don't want to do that. But if 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 I know the man well, which I think I do, he 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 never really gave us that positive reinforcement because he didn't want us to become complacent. Mm. But I think what happens is we get older, we start to reflect and look back on that period of our life and go. Yeah, there were, you know, there were things and there were players that had, you know, great games and great seasons and great careers and those type of things. Um, and and, and I, I, like, I think it's justified because you had an unbelievably good grand final um, along with Rocky. I, you know, that you, mm. would be, you and Rocky would be the two people. Although I did get 25 touches, 21 kicks, four handballs, seven <laughs> after that day and I gave it to Arch, but anyway, well done, Arch. Um, Rocky, well, you, you, did, you did change the game, though. That I had to because Troy Luff had just kicked two goals. The runner came out, and I just got told if you don't do something, you're off the ground. So I looked at Luffy, had a quick look to see how pl- how far Plug was away. He was 100 metres, so I was safe if I gave him one. So I put one on his chin, and that was it. <laughs> and uh, I don't think. Luffy may like you or I because I think I've told the story a few times where I said, you know what, you go into the grand final, we did all this planning and we're going to go, <laughs> okay, we've got Paul Kelly and yeah. we've got Plugger and we're yeah. going, they're going to be the match winners and next minute, Troy Luff bobs yeah. up in the first quarter and kicks two or three and you think, kick two. Kick we're two. not going to get beaten by Paul Kelly or, or no. Plugger, we're actually going to get beaten by Luffy. Yeah, so I had to put a stop to that and I'm not advocating violence anymore on a footy field. Um, Getting back to your observation about Dennis, I, through that time, didn't help the situation because I never spoke to him about it, right? So I didn't give him context as to what I was dealing with. I'd like to think that if I had have trusted him and trusted myself to tell him what was going, uh, what I was going through, he might have been able to understand why my moods, and my moods were up and down all the time. I could be really happy and I could be really low. Um, but for no, for no reason. And, and the reason why my moods were so up and down was because I was living with mental health conditions. And all I ever wanted, Corey, all I ever wanted during my entire footy career, and I, I openly say this now, but I knew it at the time, was I just wanted the love of my coaches. I just wanted my coaches to love me in the sense of an arm around the shoulder when you're a bit down and, mate, it's okay, we'll get through this together, you know, I'm proud of what you do, whatever it might be. But the way that Dennis coached was with a massive big stick. And for me living through what I was living through, that was the last thing I needed. And I think that that was a significant contributing factor why we had such a tumultuous relationship. And with with the benefit of growing up and reflecting on it, that's why I wish if I could go back um, and just be honest with him, I'd like to think that the relationship would have been a healthier relationship. But do you also think like it's it's fantastic with the benefit of hindsight, but also during that period, thanks to people like yourself nowadays, everyone everyone feels 
a lot better about having a conversation about the space of mental health. But if during the 90s, if you had said to someone like Dennis or anyone that, oh, mental health, I think genuinely then it probably did have that bit of a stigma. So oh, there's no doubt it was it was something that you didn't talk about. Yeah. And, and, and you know, the, the, the other thing that, again, with the benefit of growing up and, um, you know, reflecting on my life and the person that I am, I've, 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 I don't want this to sound self-indulgent, but I've learned to like and accept the person that I am because for most of my adult life, and I think this talks to a lot of people, I wanted respect, I wanted to be liked, I wanted to be accepted and I wanted people to enjoy being in my company and that was really important. But what happens is you compromise yourself to try and meet the expectations that you might have of yourself and other people. And the mere thought of being open with you guys or coaches or even my dad who I never spoke to about it for 12 years, to take that risk and tell them, I believed that I would be judged and seen as weak and I'd lose those things. So I never took that risk. But what I can say is that I can't tell you or any of my teammates during that time that the number of, and I'm going to put the number somewhere into the thousands because we were together all the time for a long period. The thousands of times where I was on the verge of crying in the company of you and my teammates and my coaches and staff and never once allowing myself to do it because I was scared. Mm. And I would, I, would, I would reach for another drink. I would, I would just do anything that I could to make sure that I didn't show that vulnerability because, for me, vulnerability back then was weakness and I didn't yeah. want to be seen as weak. And what I've learned is that, no, vulnerability is a really important strength, especially for a human being, whether you're a male or a female. Um, but football wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. Mental health was stigmatised. There was so much discrimination. And, you know, if, if, if I've played a small role in helping to open up the area of mental health and well-being, um, then that's, that's I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with that, you know, because this is, you know me well, mate. I, I, I believe in this. This is my professional career. I've doubled down on this. And I used to think that, that my purpose in life was to be a football player. That's a chapter which was written a long time ago and it's something I'm proud of, but I, I, I know why I'm here. This is my purpose. It's to continue to do the work of Pucker Up. It's to impact people in a positive sense, give them hope, give them a sense of connection and let them know that these challenges are bloody hard, but without what I've gone through, I, I'm a better person because of it and I'm grateful for that. Um, just on that, do you... Do you think it helped or hindered that you're at somewhere like North Melbourne? I know you touched on it because because we played hard and we trained hard, but we ultimately did play hard. Did it? Did in some ways it it actually help, as you alluded to before, that you could basically you knew that if we were in a social gathering after a game or whatever that you you know I mean you were having a beer or things like that. Did did it help or was it incredibly still incredibly frustrating? No, it, the honest answer, mate, is it was it was it was incredibly hard because yeah. because I would have to pretend to be happy. Yeah. Um, and 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 the only time it wasn't hard is when I was drunk. I mean, that's just the reality of it. When I was drunk, my thoughts stopped. Yeah. And I was quite careless and reckless, like a lot of us when we do get drunk. But I drank 
not to enjoy it. I drank to get drunk. And that was a failed attempt at trying to self-medicate what I was dealing with. So I was very anxious. You know, I, I lived with paralyzing fear for 12 years of what you would think, what my teammates would think, coaches, everybody, my dad and my family. There were four people that knew for 12 and a half years. Rach, my wife, Harry, the doctor at Sydney, Tom Cross, six years after being diagnosed, I finally asked for help. And an amazing lady psychiatrist, Lisa Lampy in Sydney, they were the only people that knew. So for 12 years, I hid what I had because I didn't trust myself or those people I cared about to respect me and accept me for what I had. So if you think about that, every time I was with you or anyone else, all of my energy went into pretending that I was happy, which meant that I had very little energy in reinvesting back into getting healthy and well. So it was hard. It was a hard situation. But, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm grateful for that experience because it's taught me so much. I'm not, I'm not ashamed. I'm not afraid. We're having a conversation. Mm. You know my story. It doesn't define me. And if people want to judge me negatively at the end of the day, mate, they can judge me negatively because I don't give a shit. I'm not going to worry about that. I'm just going to worry about the people that support me and accept me. So, like, imagine, yeah, like, so going into, like, a huge game, just say, like, a, a 96 grand final week, what, what would your normal week of preparation look like like i mean obviously normal when when i say like a normal preparation in terms of what we'd all go through there was the the stuff like we your normal training your weights all that sort of thing but was there anything else that you were doing in order to get you know i mean get yourself up to be in the right frame of mind to play footy well the challenge the challenge um the challenge when living this is my experience right so but the challenge i had consistently was i didn't know whether uh, whether it be the grand, the grand final was actually okay. But during that period, there were games where I played, but I was not there, if that mm. makes sense. I was physically there, but mentally and emotionally, I was in a completely different place. So I was disconnected to what it is that I loved. And, and, and I don't know if this makes sense, but I loved the group. I loved the group of players that I played footy with. I, I genuinely loved and cared about them. But there were times during that period where I was on a ground with 21 other mates that I knew would have my back in half a second, yet I felt incredibly lonely because I was in my own headspace. So the challenge was always for me, I had to be... I had to train incredibly well every single training session because if I trained well, then I could tick that box and I knew that if I trained well during the week, I could get to the game yeah. and I've given myself the best opportunity of playing to a high standard. Didn't always work out, work out that way, but that was my thinking. And during grand final week, one of, the, one of the, the interesting things, and I don't know about your experience, but I actually found training, that was my sanctuary. Because during grand final week, it's, it's, so, it's, over, it's over the top. It's off the chart. There's so many people who want to talk about it. You know, what's the game? Where do you feel? You excited, blah, 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 blah. So during that time, the, most, the calmest I was was during training because it was, it was just us. It was our coaches and we were doing our thing. So I, I, I really enjoyed the training in the lead up to, uh, to the grand final. Um, I look back on the grand final parade and I was in the same car with Flossie and that's just, I mean, that's one of the most surreal experiences that I've been lucky enough to experience yeah. because of that. Um, and I just remember getting to the ground and I can remember hearing, when we were in the change rooms, I can remember hearing the noise of the crowd going nuts 
And then once we started to come up the race, I don't remember hearing anything. And I was just I just wanted the game to start. Um, and 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 it, it I don't know, it's 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 very hard to I don't know about you, but it's very hard to describe to other people who've never been in that situation what it feels like. But I just felt once the game got underway that this is what we trained for. Like we, 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 we lost to West Coast in 93 by 10 goals at Waverley Park. So it was four and a half years of hard bloody work, 94, 95, missing out, kick after the siren by Ablett. Mm. Um, you know, beaten by Sydney, two games in the home and away in 96 by 10 goals and 100 points. We, we'd gone into a grand final, but I just felt like we, we, were, we were ready. We were ready. And, and, and the other thing which I forgot to include was the dinner at the MCG during the week where Ronnie Joseph took us out on the MCG and there was just enough light with the Hessian bag in the middle of the centre circle and he lifted up the bag and there was a Premiership Cup and he issued the challenge of, you know, whether or not we wanted to become the third Premiership team for Kangaroos. It was a great week, mate. Absolutely beautiful. I actually did. Yeah, I mentioned that with the article I did with the, <clears throat> the Herald Sun during the week and they said about impactful moments and I said yeah well that that for mine had as big an impact with me that we we had that dinner at the MCG and normal sort of dinner as you know uh, for everyone out there Ronnie Joseph is one of the great speakers that you'll ever hear Uh, and by the way a Mm. dinner at the MCG for the kangaroos who had two portable classrooms back in those days that was salubrious (laughs) we would normally go to a pub for a meal like that (laughs) <laughs> and then yeah look I, I remember at the end of dinner and then Ronnie just said right follow me follow me and we had no idea where we were going and we went down into the rooms and there it was we walked out in the middle of the MCG and to go out in the middle of the MCG when as you said there, there's barely any lights on it's probably enough lights that are coming from the function rooms that are giving the light onto the ground and to be able to go down onto the ground and we all stood there in, in the group and then he pulled out the Hessian bag I think it was the 1975 Premiership Cup it's yeah. It's little things like that that when you end up winning it, that you look back on and how big of an impact they probably had. But what about... There's um, something, something else we did too, Corey. Yeah, I'm not, you know what I'm going to say, don't you, Wayne? We went, well, to, we went to the Gold Coast on a little mid-year trip, didn't we? No, that's not what... Are you going to mention that? No, I'm not. That's, hang on, hang on, hang on. It's your interview, so you can ask everything, anything you yeah. want. I may not answer. The other thing that we did, which, 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 which um, I've just remembered, was remember that we signed a, a big board um, that had the names of the 90, uh, 75 and 77 premiership players and we also signed uh, a, a big board, I don't know, it was a cardboard board or something that Dennis got us all to sign. We, we made a pledge at the beginning of the final series that we wanted to become another group of premiership players and he also got the premiership players from 77 to create messages for all of the players. That's something else that we did too. It'd be interesting to see if uh, someone, like little things like that, whether, yeah, who the hell's got them or when, when the grandstand burnt down at North Melbourne. Now, usually when clubs, when their grandstand burns down, I think it's a time of sorrow. I think for every North Melbourne person, it was a great time of, of great joy because it meant we were going to eventually get new facilities. <laughs> Well, anyone that wasn't involved in the club back in those days will not understand or comprehend the fact that we played in seven consecutive preliminary finals, won two grand finals, lost another one, and we had arguably the most dilapidated training venue of all the clubs during that time. Yeah, it'd be hands down. You you walk into the old grandstand, you walk down that hallway, and in the right-hand side was the great Jackie King and... 
yep. and have the boxing yep. ring in there, which, and yep. you talk about, I think people that have impacts, so I think even the impact that Jack King, I know that yep. when I first, you know, I mean, I was a skinny kid and whatever, but to be able to get in the ring with Alex Ashenko and, in the end, because I had the reach, and if I, uh, there's one tip out there or, <laughs> that I learnt real quick, is that you don't hit John Longmore like hitting John Longmore. <laughs> well, I hit him on the chin one day, and then he proceeded to kick me. So, <laughs> now he is a guy that shouldn't box because he cannot control his anger. Yeah, no good. Yeah. No good. Uh, what? Oh well. Now you were very elusive uh, on the field, but there was one night, Wayne. I think that you wish that you probably had been elusive. What, what a, take us through after the 97 prelim final and Glenn Archer yeah. doing the little two-step out of there and you fronting up like you do and no. what happened? Uh, well, the context, the reason for those who don't know is that the 97 uh, prelim, we lost to St Kilda by 32 points, right? You you did your shoulder in that game too, if yeah, I yeah in the first yeah. ten minutes. And I think Duck was he had an injured wing as well, didn't he? Well, Duck had come back. He, he yep. I think he'd been out for thirteen or fourteen weeks, but played yep. the last seven or eight games of the year. Right. So let me give you the context for those who don't know. You've got your shinboner of the century, which the shinboner of the century is meant to represent these qualities: courage, strength, <laughs> intestinal fortitude. Someone who's prepared to stand in the trenches when yep. enemy is starting to get... Side by side with your mates. Side by side, loyal, all of that stuff. So the shinbone of the century has just been suspended the week before against the Cats for clocking someone. And your vice captain has been suspended for four weeks for allegedly stomping on a tagger. Now, let's clear this up straight away. Taggers should have been stomped on then, Corey. And if you see the vision... How the hell Neil Buzzy gave me four weeks for a little love tap on the stomach of Carl Steinford's be on me. But there I was, suspended for four, Archer's out for two. You boys are out there playing the game. We lose by 32 points. The reason why I wanted to stay in the race was very simple, was because my thinking at the time, and I said this to Arch through the entire game, I said, mate, we're going to stay here because what happens is if the boys lose, Pago's going to come out of the box. He's going to see us in the race. He's going to give us a little clip on the way through and then he's going to go in there and bag the other bastards that lost the game. You lot, right? Mm. So anyway, <clears throat> I see Pago coming off down the coach's box, down through the members, out onto the ground. And you know he's like. He's just this big, massive, bloody beetroot head, curly hair. You know he's going to lose his marbles somewhere. And the whole time I'm watching him, I'm thinking, oh, he's not happy. He's going to rip us a new here. But I kept thinking, Archer's right beside me. This is good. So he's going to have a crack at me. He's going to have a crack at Archer, and then he'll keep going through. Anyways, Dennis got to the bottom of the race, and the vision captures this. He starts to launch into me. And I thought, well, that's a pretty strong start. And I'm halfway up the race. The race is about 50 metres long. Anyways, Dennis is starting to get stuck into me. I just looked past Dennis, and I could see a few of you blokes. And then at the very back... There's that little, little pudgy, dirty defender, Glenn Archer. And I'm thinking, you little prick. Somehow he's walked out onto the ground without me seeing him. Dennis has seen me and given me the best spray I've ever had in my entire life. He kept going. I could hear him once he got into the rooms and he was still going. We eventually go in, close the doors, and then he ripped, he ripped Arch and I on new backside for the next 10 minutes. And the interesting thing was, like he had every right, Mate, we, we, we did the wrong thing and we, we cost our team. Um, but that 
that spray was the deciding moment. Once that meeting finished, I walked out of the change rooms and the first person I saw was my old man. And I said, I'm done. I'm not playing here anymore. I need a change. Um, and, and, and even though that was incredibly disappointing, I'm grateful that Dennis did what he did because it was the massive foot up my backside that I needed in order to really seriously think about my footy career and what I wanted to do. And fortunately for me, I was given a second chance with the Sydney Swans and Kangaroos got Shannon Grant and it was a great exchange for both. And with going to the Swans initially, was that, it would have been a little bit, I suppose, scary not having the great Harry Unlick not as by your side in Sydney. I know you, I know you touched on the, the Swans medical staff who sound like, you know, I mean, they stepped in, but it still would have been pretty scary to go up there without, without Harry, you know, I mean, well, basically at your side. Uh, yeah, I, d- I didn't really think of it at the time, Corey, because I was distracted because there was a new opportunity. Yeah. Um, you know, it, there, was a, there was a chance to go and prove to myself that I was still good enough because 97 was a terrible year for me for a host of reasons. So to be given an opportunity to go to Sydney, and one of, one of, one of, the, one of the reasons why I enjoyed Sydney so much was I actually hated, and I don't overstate that word, but I actually hated the attention that came with playing footy. I didn't like yeah. it at all. And one of, the, one of the things that drove me insane a lot was that I felt incredibly disrespected and I felt all of my teammates felt were dis, being disrespected because of the sole focus on Duck. Now, Duck's a great player and deserves all of the accolades that he gets. But Duck was one of 17 players on the ground. He needed our defenders, Laidley, Blakey, Fairley, Martin. He needed those defenders to play well on the opposition forwards. He needed the midfield to be playing particularly well. He needed his forward lines to be working properly for him to go and do what he did. And he did that incredibly well. So I hated all of that stuff. And the move to Sydney just gave me the opportunity of reconnecting with why I love this game of footy. I could walk down the street. When I made my decision to go to Sydney, I made two phone calls. I had Rodney come up, I was staying with a close mate uh, on the Gold Coast while you boys were on a footy trip. I wasn't a footy trip person, but I wasn't going this year because I needed to make a really big decision without the distraction of you guys because I always felt my relationships were the most important thing. So Rocket came up, spent a day with me, I rang Ruzi, who was great. I rang Plugger, and Plugger's a man of few words. And I said, mate, what's it been like for you? And he said, no one knows who I am. And I said, mate, that's all I need to hear. Because if Paul, uh, Tony Lockett can go to Sydney and no one recognises him, then I can go to Sydney and no one's going to recognise me. And then the third, the third conversation I had was with my dad. He was working um, as a painter and I went in, in Strathmore, ironically. And I went around to him and I had a conversation with him on the nature strip. And he said, what, what are you going to do? I said, well, I want to go to Sydney, but I, I, I don't know if I can. And he goes, why? What's the thing that bothers you the most? And I, I said to him, I said, I'm worried that I'll lose my mates because I've said this a number of times. Mate, I love you blokes and I still love you blokes, even though we don't see each other a lot. My relationships with my teammates then were the most important thing. And the thing that I was really worried about was I would lose those relationships. And he goes, mate, they'll always be your mates. You know, if they're real mates, they'll always respect you. And that was that was the moment that I made the decision I need to go to Sydney. Um, I went there and I had four and a half really good quality years. Um, you know, and Kangaroos got Shannon Grant, Norm Smith, Premiership player. Worked out for him, worked out for me. And I just fell in love with the game again, Corey. And, and, and I, 
I, I think that if I hadn't moved, I had I had to move interstate. I couldn't play with another Melbourne-based club. That would have been too hard. But if I hadn't moved, then I don't know, mate. I'm, I may have walked away from the game or been lost to the game, you know, much sooner than what I was eventually. Yeah, and it worked out like pretty good for all round, didn't it? Yeah, it did, except the day that Arch knocked me out at the SCG and I spent two and a half quarters chasing him, trying to knock him back out to square it up. <laughs> that sounds like Arch. He did most of his damage at the uh, SCG because that's where he got uh, Lenny Hayes as well. He did too. He got me good. He got me good. And uh, what was quite funny is he knocked me out and then he helped pick me up. <laughs> and I got taken off the ground and it took me about five minutes and I said to our trainer, um, uh, uh, Wally Jackson, bless his soul, um, I said, who did that? And he goes, you don't want to know. I said, no, I do. I need to know who knocked me out. He goes, you don't want to know. I grabbed him by the scruff of the shirt. I said, you tell me who knocked me out. And he goes, it was your mate Arch. So I chased him for two and a half quarters. I couldn't get him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good luck trying to knock him out. Yeah. Um, look, i got a couple of questions, Swatter, before we go. It's actually, I mean, time has actually flown and I'm just, and we could actually sit here all day, but I've got a couple of questions. I've picked out the best couple. Speaking of the Swans, I've got a question from Andrew John that said he was devastated when you were trading, or traded, sorry. Mm. Which team does Swatter think had the better culture? Uh, kangaroos by another universe. I can, I can recall um, being in the hallway back in the old change rooms underground at the SCG, it was either my second or first or second year, and Craig O'Brien was a teammate. And um, Sydney had all of their yearly uh, team photos up. And they were from their first year at, the, at Sydney to the year that that was, so it was either 98 or 99. And Obi was sitting in front of the photos, and, and I just walked up and I said, mate, what are you doing? And he just looked at me, and he just very calmly said, he said, how the hell do we get culture at this place? Like, you know, you've come from a club that's got such strong culture. How, how do we create that? And I guess that was, that was the realisation that I'd left a club that the culture was part of our DNA. This is why we played and, 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 and you know, loved our football club, the Kangaroos, but because the culture was, you could feel it. You could see it, you could feel it, you represented all of that. And it was, it was sort of, it was a jolting experience to go to Sydney and realise that a guy that had been at the club for a number of years, they were still searching for that. Um, so it's an easy answer for me. The, the, the kangaroos then and now have an incredible culture. But full yeah. credit to Sydney through the Paul Ruse and Brett Kurt era was that they've established their own incredible culture as well and they should be incredibly proud of that. Yeah, they have. Now, the other one, and I think this is my pick of the bunch, Michael McKenzie. It says, hey, Corey McKernan, I heard Wayne speak at a conference my um, work put on late last year. He's an amazing man. My question is, if he had the choice, knowing the amazing work he's doing now and the positive impact it is having on so many people's lives, would he go through it all again? Go through? Well, basically... The, you know, I mean, the journey that you've gone from a mental health capacity and, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's an easy answer, mate, yeah, because it's, it, it, it's, it's taught me so much. Yeah. yeah. I'm not perfect, mate. I'm far from it and I make a lot of mistakes, but I'm a better person. Um, I love what I do. Um, you know, if I had a choice of would I play footy again or would I do this, I'd do this in a heartbeat. I'd stay doing this. And the reason why is that 
you know, when you play sport, it's a really selfish pursuit at the elite level. It's about yep. me, you, us, our families, our, our real families. They're not our primary family. Our primary family are our teammates and our staff. That's, that's, that's just what it is. And when you think about it, if we, if we win a game of footy or if we win a premiership, people are happy. They're over the moon. So that's positive. But if we lose, you know, they're disappointed or they're, they're pissed off with us for a period of time. I can confidently say that my career may have given people some positive moments of their life. But I don't believe any game in 282 ever saved a life. The work that we do here, it saves lives, mate. That's why I love doing what I'm doing. So to answer the question, yes, I would if it helped, if it was, if it taught me what I needed to know yeah. in order to do this. And this is what I'm, I'm proudest of the most because we've been operating for three and a bit years. There are members of our community and many of them I've never met, but there are people who are alive, healthy, living with mental health conditions who are on the verge of thinking about ending their life. They've chosen not to because Pucker Up has given them the courage and support to be able to get healthy and well. And I love it, mate. I just love doing what I'm doing because it's just, it, there's nothing more satisfying and rewarding to know that what we do is changing people's lives positively. And now look for all the all the footy fans and all the North Melbourne fans out there. I mean, if they want to, is there any way they can get involved with Pucker Up or is there any way they can help out with Pucker Up? What's Yeah, what, and I appreciate your asking, Corey. What, what I'd encourage people to do is we're, we're, about to re, we're about to launch a new website next month which will have a, an, an enormous amount of information and education. If people want to join our community, Pucker Up, P-U-K-A-U-P, that's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, but Facebook and Instagram uh, are the main uh, social media platforms, uh, the website. And, and it's not so much I want to encourage people to join to help us. What I want to, what I want to finish on, Corey, is join our organisation and our community so we can help you help yourself. And what I mean by that is no one has to get sick before they start to look after their mental health. So what we do is we're not in the crisis space. We're not reacting once people get sick. We're at the other end and we've got a range of tools and programs and workshops that can empower people to start to develop their own toolbox so they can manage and look after their mental health. So it's more about how we can help them as individuals as opposed to them helping us as an organisation. Yeah. No, look, it's, um, yeah, look, I think, on behalf of every North Melbourne supporter and then I, I suppose being a long-term teammate of yours and like I said, this bloke was probably, if not my favourite teammate to, uh, to play footy with. I mention it to little kids that, I mean, I use the Wayne Swass example all the time that I could walk into a stoppage and know that I'd have these Maori eyes piercing me <laughs> to hit the ball his way. But, um, but look, I, I know that everyone's incredibly proud uh, of what you've done and the bravery that you've shown. And, you know, I mean, but also great to chat about the, the period of football where, you know, I mean, you, you're, what you were doing were as good as anyone going around. And I know, I know that what we'll do is at the bottom of the, of the videos that we're putting out, we'll make sure that, that Pucker Up's very prominent. And um, I know on behalf of everyone, just great to sit down and have a really good chat. Uh, mate, I love you, mate. I always have for a long time. It's always good chat. We don't get to see each other often. Um, I appreciate the opportunity of sitting down and talking about all things. Um, 
you know, it, it, I, I'm, I'm proud of what we were able to achieve during a really, a really successful period of the footy club. And, you know, even though we don't get to see each other a lot, there's special memories and special friendships. Um, and I'm grateful for this. You know, a couple of things in finishing, mate. Um, Jason McCartney was your first one, right? Yep. And then it was um, Fatty Archer. Yes, it was your mate, Fatty Archer, yep. yes. Fatty Archer. Can't believe you got a Norm Smith in 96. If it wasn't you, if it wasn't Rocky, it should have been me. Um, have you done Duck yet? Uh, he is meant to be next week. Well, it's not the first time that I've finished in front of Duck, so that makes <laughs> me feel good. And someone brought this up to me and I forgot about it because this used to cause me great consternation. Um, and it was brought to my attention again. Can you hold your hands up, please? About what? Oh, there it is. There nah, it is. That's not uh, the one. Where's the other one? The other hand. You see, that's wrong, mate. And that's the image I want people to finish this video conference with. Corey's had banged up hands for a long time. But anyway. It's been oh, don't worry. It's a, it's, it's a source of amusement. So for people, <laughs> I'll finish with this. So when oh, you, go, you know when you go to the United States and yeah. you LAX, you go down those escalators, you know what I'm going to say. Yeah, your hands because are then you get down there and you're trying to wonder, oh, yeah, I'll go left because I've got to go with all the all the – Normal, all us people that got to line up. The Americans go right. We're going to yeah. line up for forty-five minutes, and you finally get to the scanner. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I'm there for the next ten minutes trying to get my finger across. And then the lady in the red coat will come across and go, "Oh, can you just straighten your finger?" I go, I straighten my finger. I would have. <laughs> you know the best thing about this chat. Well, I didn't have to answer the. Uh, Queensland trip question. It's been good chatting with you, Corey. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. Take care, brother. See ya. On you, mate.